Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm on a screen with my colleagues, Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Merrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And joining us all the way from the other side of um, London <laughs> is <laughs> the fabulous the story, Barbara yeah. Allen. <laughs> You're Welcome, lucky to Barbara. have me in any way. <laughs> Hello. We are. Hi. Sorry I couldn't make it to you today to where I used to live nearby. <laughs> <laughs> One day we'll be able to teleport you over here. Um, <laughs> for listeners, Barbara was a legendary contributor to NME from the late 80s to the 90s when she began writing for The Observer, where she's still an unmissably readable columnist. In this episode, we're going to talk to her about the NME and about the sequel to This Is Spinal Tap. Plus, we will hear clips from a Christmas-themed audio interview with the late Genesis P. Orridge. Barbara, your way into the world of music journalism, as I understand it, was via your own mid-80s fanzine, Wax Lyrical. Sadly, we have no copies of it in the RBP archive, so can you tell us about it? Well, wasn't my first fanzine. It was my great fanzines. How many fanzines did you do? Well, I know. Well, we'll come on to your football one in a minute. But go on. How many? Well, How many? Well, I did, I did quite a few. I used to make my own comics first. I was a big fan of Misty Comic. Jasper won't remember that. You might remember that. I, I don't, don't remember that. Oh, okay. It was like a We're, too like... We're too young. We're too young. It was a slightly gothy gothy kind of comic about broken Ooh. dolls and haunted Ooh. houses and all that sort of stuff. So I did that first and then I did a few college fanzines and then I did Wax Lyrical and it had like cartoons of like Nick Cave and reviews and it had uh, interview with the gun club and, and stuff like that. So, wow. and I couldn't be bothered to sell it because it was really hard work. <laughs> 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 so I just sort of sent it into Zigzag where it was reviewed and then Mercer got in touch because he was the editor then. So that was that. Yeah, I, I kind of like skirted the bit where you had to do a bit of work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love the phrase, I couldn't be bothered to sell it. I mean, it's just so entrepreneurial. Well, the I thing is, it. a lot of can, uh, fancy, they were, very, they were like that, very hardworking, but mm. the girls, you got locked into conversations about somebody's life like, two year, you know like gigs for the last two years and it was too time consuming so you know unless somebody let you put it on their t-shirt stall it was it was not something you wanted to do <laughs> so there um, you go we also lack any copies of zigzag um, in the era <laughs> that you wrote for it we have we have a more or less complete collection up to the point where you join it so literally day, you, <laughs> just literally days before you arrive coincidence <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we chucked them all out. No, tell us what <laughs> tell us what you did for Zigzag. Who did you write about? Well, the first thing I was sent on was uh, I think it was a guy called the Metal Donut Band, and they were naked. Do you remember them? <laughs> they yeah, they were start naked. That was my first interview, <laughs> and I had to go to do them start naked. Uh, I can't actually remember many others that I did for them. Um, <laughs> I can see why you remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one was pretty memorable. I think I interviewed the Redskins, right? Also, and uh, yeah, stuff like that. And King, do you remember Paul King? Oh God, yes. yes. 
<laughs> love and pride and all that. So, yeah, I did a few for them and then it folded. It's definitely not the zigzag of sort of the, you Chris know, the quick, Quicksilver from... Messenger surface years, is it? <laughs> well, the naked metal well, first donut. It, first it zigged and then it zagged, obviously. <laughs> it was quite vibey, actually. There were a lot, it's like the Cure sort of era and uh, stuff like that. So, you know, Mick had a sort of gothic, gothic leaning. So yes. he took it in that direction. I think Chris Needs was still around. He, he'd pop in occasionally. Mick Sinclair wrote for it as well, didn't he, Ron? Yeah, and there's there like Tom Vague and there was uh, Ron Scapello, who was called Ron Rom. He's now a filmmaker. He does documentaries. Uh, I think James was wafting in and out, James Brown. Brown. You know, so it's that sort of era. But, yeah, there obviously Zigzag went back a lot further and did all the rock and all the, yes, all went the back, kind of Debbie went, Harrys. And, went back to when know. we were young. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, first, I first bought it in 1969, for God's sake. Lots wow. Of okay. Yeah. So who <laughs> go, go on, say so it. You weren't it? even alive, were you? Weren't <laughs> even alive. So who was the editor then? Oh, God. Well, Andy Childs. Uh, yep. Pete Frame and Pete... Andy Childs and John Tobler were the original guys. And yep. they weren't gothic okay. at all. Let me just tell you, they were not gothic. <laughs> Um, it so, was quite gothic when I when I worked for it, but I was still in kind of heavy goth denial then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> does have emerged though. <laughs> I've, had to, I've had to own up to quite a lot of it since the photograph started coming out. <laughs> so you were a fully paid up member of the goth club then? No, I didn't do the lace gloves and stuff like that. Okay, there's a lot. Of, there's a lot of hair crimping though. um, there was a lot of technique involved in that (laughs) but I got called a hippie as well which I didn't take very kindly to because I had like quite long bushy hair and um so I'd rather get called a goth than a hippie sorry Jasper I don't follow you (laughs) (laughs) your lovely long hair but uh yeah there's quite a lot of arguing about which group you belong to which tribe you belong to because I saw myself as a sort of punk but nobody else did. And there's a lot of arguments. There's quite a lot of crusty allegations and stuff like that. So I wasn't happy about it. Goth's having a real revival at the moment. I mean, Kathy Unsworth's book, at least two yeah. books about Goth have just, just come out. It's, it's, a, it's a hot subject. <laughs> I think it's an, on, it's an ongoing infection, isn't it? It's like it never really goes away because it's, it's inside people. It's it, is, it is within. It's like <laughs> so, a virus. You know. yeah. it, it is it if is they're not. In, it is if they're not in heavy goth denial, which is so far my favourite phrase in this episode. <laughs> heavy goth denial. I mean, it could almost be the name of a band, couldn't it? But were you were you in goth denial when you got your foot in the door at NME, Barbara? Yeah, definitely. I walked in, and the first thing someone shouted across the office was, "Of course." Stephen Wells, good, we need a goth. And so I was like, <laughs> I was done. I was the goth then. Okay. But, um, yeah, so they, they did need a goth, and they needed a few more girls as well. So I got in there, I think. But, yeah, that's the first thing that happened. I think that was the look then, though. I, I'm still in goth denial. I think that was the look. And a lot of goths are very, very glamorous. I wouldn't have made it as a goth, really. They were very put together, very kind of just so, big look going on. And I don't think, I, it was hard work and I wasn't into that. 
<laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, we're, we're Facebook friends, and over the years you've posted quite a few photographs of your younger self. I think yeah. you sort of slot into that pretty well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Uh, <laughs> well, I was accused of a lot of things. I thought I think goths are one of the least of the few evils. I didn't like the crusty thing or the greebo thing or the no. hippie thing. No. So we'll go. With, we'll go with goth. I didn't Going think that um, there's a lot of the music that I like, that's all. It was quite a small scene, it seemed, even though it's gone on and on and, and has grown. I didn't really slot in things like The Cure and The Banshees as goth at all. I saw them as punk. So once you take them out of the equation, goth starts shrinking quite a lot for well, me. Yeah, because I suppose I would think that Robert Smith and Susie Sue were like the sort of the, the, the godparents, if not the grandparents of goth. Well, that was just the look of it, though. And I right. think the the sound okay. of it, I would put them in totally different okay. kind of category. I, I'd see them as, as sort of just punk alternative, definitely. Okay, okay. So, but the look, I mean, Susie was probably like the benchmark of beauty when I was growing up in that kind of music scene. She was sort of seen as a massive beauty to look as close to her as possible. Was, right, right. Was, you know, what's the goal? Her and Debbie Harry and Chrissy Hine and, and uh, Kate Bush. Yes, and yes. like that. So one of the pieces we're featuring by you on the homepage in the featured writer slot is, it's called Days of Guns N' Roses. And you wrote this in November 1997 for your new home, The Observer. And you said, the truth is, for good or ill, the enemy shaped my destiny. If I hadn't started working there in the late 80s, I don't know what would have happened to me. (laughs) I could have ended up buried alive in suburbia, dead in the gutter, or worse, a mini bar virgin for life. I love that that's worse than being dead in the gut. Um, <laughs> one thing is for sure, I would have lost out. At the enemy, you got to live like a rock star, <clears throat> even if it was the kind of rock star with no success, money or fans. There's not a lot of money in rock journalism. The office careerists always stood out a mile. They were the ones without scurvy. <laughs> Um, so- that is true, though. <laughs> the, mo- the, the least well-paid job ever, yeah. even in, even among all the creatives. Yeah. And I was shocked to learn, well, a little while ago, that they don't even get free records anymore. I mean, what are people surviving on these things? <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> trolling down to the shops with your with your records to sell was one of the only reasons I think some people survive. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But apparently they check out streams now and stuff like that. It's so yeah. tight. That's <laughs> yeah. not good. <laughs> they do chuck out streams. <laughs> yeah, they but, do. I mean, that's that. That's I. You know, I do feel really sorry for anyone wanting to be a music journalist. Now it's like trying to be a blacksmith. It's kind of like a really weird zone <laughs> to go into now, isn't that? <laughs> and there's nothing laid on for you. It's, no, you know, it's very difficult. So that's that's really sad, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a kind of gateway thing, isn't it? Did you feel you were part of a kind of revolt to the sort of previous half generation of of enemy journalists, which would include myself? I mean, there, I mentioned this because there was a piece that when um, the enemy like went print free or just stopped printing in 2018, yeah. you were one of the people who wrote pieces about that. And there was a piece that Marianne Hobbs wrote for the New York Times, and she claims that 
James Brown, who you've already mentioned, who started as the features editor, called her and said, we know a lot about the Smiths and Marxist politics, but we don't know enough about rock music. Can you come and write some stuff for us at the NME? I mean, so late 80s, you know, the NME kind of did, Im- it, it sort of started to embrace like, capitals r-o-c-k didn't it in in its in its many different tribal forms and it was sort of like we're really not interested in sort of structuralist sort of you know polemics anymore post-structuralist polemics or (laughs) post-structuralist yes exactly i mean derrida was banished from the pages i mean did it feel what was the culture like for you. Well, I came in probably at that time because Alan Lewis was taking over and it wasn't so much <clears throat> dumbing down as he wanted he needed to sort of sell some issues. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not that's not a dig. That's no. just, you know, he he was brought in to kind of make it something, you know, the passing consumer would want to buy as opposed to just yeah. a very, very intense sort of music fan. So I guess that's why we all ended up doing a lot more pop, a lot more rock, kind of engaging on all sorts of different levels apart from very obscure stuff. So, yeah, that's probably true. But I also think that it wasn't quite as – you did still – there's so many different personalities and writing styles and, and focuses and interests on the paper when I was there even. So – you know, it didn't really feel like you you were kind of being forced to take any approach, really. It probably caught that sort of the, the, the big waves of like Manchester and stuff like that. Yes. But that was sort of outside the paper, that happening. So I'm not, I'm not sure. I think Stuart, people like Stuart Cosgrove and Sean O'Hagan and Lucy O'Brien were leaving around that point. And maybe they represented a more sort of intellectualised era. Well, I'm very political. I'm very, very left of centre. Yeah. And not that, not that you guys suddenly lurched to the right. It was really fun going back to choose some pieces to spot on the homepage. I, I, I loved one of the earliest enemy pieces you wrote which was an interview with guns and roses october 1987 it starts i am examining a rock biped i'm the subject, so <laughs> the subject has been refusing to leave his plastic bubble of rock consciousness for some time now i have learned oh that his God. name is slash <laughs> and that he plays guitar for an american rock band called guns and roses probe any deeper than that and he shrinks away blinking furiously the worst case of its kind i have ever seen <laughs> I love that. What's wrong with that? It's hilarious. I think that's very, very funny. I, I love he was a rock biped. I had been asking for a long time to interview them because even though I'm rubbish at anything like that, I kind of did feel that they would be absolutely even more massive soon. So I had actually begged to do that interview and pushed to do that interview. When I got there, they were so damn rude. I ended up writing that. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, I must say, they made up a story about me, like, leaving the interview room crying and all that sort of stuff. There's all sorts of drama around that particular piece. You know, they said that I I was so upset I couldn't handle it anymore. I felt I was being used in the hype, like they make journalists cry. Yeah, yeah. Right, interesting. But when I interviewed Axel, actually, he was... I should have put more quotes from him in the piece, to be fair, because he was actually fine to talk to and, and talk 
talk for a long time in a kind of nice human way. The other, the other two, I think it was Izzy and um, Slash. Right. They've they been quite boorish and from the start as well. It wasn't even my fault as usual, you know. So, <laughs> so I just thought, you know what, um, I'll have a bit of fun. But then they did break big, and they're like, "Your piece has got about five quotes in it. Well done." <laughs> it could have been this big juicy just before the moment piece and and it's not it's just me ravaging on about them being bipeds or whatever sounds like it's (laughs) their fault though so yeah the thing is though i think that kind of imaginative approach if you wanted that was quite that was happening quite a lot in the music press at that time people were doing what they wanted and it was kind of healthy Sure. And interesting for the writers, and I think the whole the whole sort of situation really mm-hmm. it gets a bit dry now. I was going to say it reminds me a bit of Smash Hits, actually, sort of slightly Smash Hitsy approach. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, that was such a great magazine as well at that time. Like really, again, the imagination and lack of hostility as well. Just like it's a party, everyone's mm. invited. Mm-hmm. Atmosphere. Yeah, they were very influential around then. Smash Hits. <laughs> Writers like Sylvia and yeah. Tom Hibbert, you know, that like really clever, funny writing and making everything else look a bit stodgy if you weren't careful. Well, it's interesting that Smash It's at this point becomes an influence on the NME, whereas when I was there, we were we were threatened and dismissive by and of <laughs> Smash Hits. <laughs> as you probably know, Barbara was directly opposite us on Carnaby Street. We would we would look down and I wasn't there the day when they apparently held up a banner with their current sales figures as compared with NME's sales figures. <laughs> 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 suffice, yeah, yeah, they were trolling us from the window across the <laughs> I do want to just ask you about Ooh Gary Gary. Well, yeah. Which is the greatest name for any fanzine of any kind ever. Tell us about I'll t- it. I'll, t- I'll take that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, um, I was in love with Gary. I wanted to give him the opportunity to ask me. To Can we be him. specific about which <laughs> Gary this is? This is Gary Lineker. Yes. And it was um, around the 1990 World Cup. And there was like World Cup fever and all that sort of stuff. And my friend and I, Fiona, decided to do our own fanzine because we'd seen football fanzines. They were very earnest, very, you know, serious about the match report. You know, like they did things properly. So we thought we'd spoof it by doing one just about Gary. And uh, yeah, it had like, (laughs) I will try and dig one out. We had like 10 interviews with him kind of his Christmas list, a kind of crossword where every answer was him and all that sort of thing going on. So, yeah, and, and I put the enemy address on as somewhere people could buy it, which didn't amuse Alan Lewis whatsoever. When all <laughs> 50p's arrived strapped pieces of paper at the office. That was really fun. Oh, that is... apparently, apparently Gary just thought it was, it was off. It was, like, not very funny. You know, he didn't like it. He, oh. he thought it was a piss tape, but it wasn't. It was an act of love. Oh! So. Do you still carry a torch? <laughs> Do you still carry a torch for the for the greying Gary Lineker? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, 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 he's actually quite cool now, isn't he? Yeah, he's quite yeah. really informed. I think he's you know, cool. We love him. We chose well. We chose well in our lusty. <laughs> yeah. 
Christ. in our lusty way. But it, it was mostly just we were having a scream doing it. We just thought it was we, we were really enjoying doing it because there was quite a lot of football and music crossover yeah. at that point. So it was it was just a really fun thing to do. And we tried to get a copy to him via Paul Gascoigne, who didn't understand what we were. <laughs> we actually bought his stupid book so we could give him our fanzine to get to Gary, but he wasn't very helpful. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> Poor Gascoigne, not very helpful. I'm well, shocked. I've heard it. I'm well. absolutely shocked. <laughs> That's absolutely magnificent. If we fast forward about seven years from that Guns N' Roses piece we're talking about, you do this very, very long interview yeah. with Madonna. And I mean, there's, there's a number of kind of revelations in that, which maybe we'll get to in a second. But just just tell us about interviewing the Queen of Pop as she as she was at that time. And I mean, maybe still is, arguably. What was it like? Yeah. Well, I was a massive Madonna fan mm-hmm. because when she came through, when I was just kind of dancing around the sort of scene, she kind of, you know, allowed you to be that person to sort of dance around and, and kind of like be a bit back chatty. And, you know, she was, I thought, very punk in, in her own way, in that sort of New York punk way. But you know what I mean? And I, I just, I thought, I thought she's lovely. I actually love her. It's not like I love her. I actually do love her. So <laughs> when I got the chance to interview her, I think I, I, I just went to the new, her New York home, which is unbelievable. It just feels like a sort of weird fever dream, but I went to her New York home. I was wandering around her place before she came in. It was like it was like that then, wasn't it? You know, and this very sort of ornate flat full of like quite sort of expensive avant-garde art and all that sort of thing. And uh, we sat down, and it was only about an hour. But she she's one of those people like you sit. It's hell on earth trying to get to her, but when you get to her, she just sits down and she's like, right, I want to do the best job I can. I think she's like that. Yes. She enjoys, she enjoys, I think she felt as well that I was, I was not hostile. She didn't have to be careful with me because I was probably kind of like crying and hugging her or something. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she knew I wasn't hostile. So she was, she was very engaged and very interesting and very playful. And you know, I read that actually, because I thought you'd be talking about it. And I just thought, oh my God, she's like really good fun in this piece. She's she doesn't mind the bit of cheek. She doesn't mind a bit of like sharpness or anything at all. She just sort of gets on with it. And I thought she was kind of um, impressive in that piece and others I've read of her as well. At the same time, it's, you know, there's some very serious things discussed. I mean, you say at times during the conversation, Madonna exhibits the strained philosophical demeanor of somebody who realizes that no one's going to look out for her but herself. Furthermore, far from being paranoid, she's absolutely correct to feel that a large proportion of the world is against her, which is which is an interesting observation. And shortly after that, she tells you that she had been raped when she first yeah. moved to New York. And you say, obviously quite shocked, you can kind of feel the shock on the page, I didn't know that you'd been raped. Mm. And she said, you're the first person I've ever told. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, reading that again was, was still mm. sort of quite shocking. Well, I couldn't, when she said it, she sort of went on to other points and I was just sort of whirling a bit in my head, not wanting to feel tabloidy, but thinking mm-hmm. I hadn't mm-hmm. heard about that. And I think then she sort of told me, I just, I, I, I kind of felt a little bit responsible and I tried to frame it in a certain way because it's, you know, it's very sort of a woman to woman thing. Yes. And also I didn't want her to feel 
like regret that she had expressed what happened. So yeah, I just think she's and her response was just to get on with her life, which I think is very. Those were the times when when women did actually respond to quite serious sexual assaults by other blaming themselves, which she doesn't do, um, or kind of getting very practical and moving on because society's not going to help them. Who's going to help them? I think that she, you know, that is that is the times you're hearing her speak there. That wouldn't wouldn't happen now. No, because she, you say she she grimaces and falls silent, and you say to her, "Would you rather stop talking about this?" And she says, I don't want to talk about it only in that. And then she kind of pauses. Yeah. Mm. I don't want to get into this Oprah Winfrey slash Sinead O'Connor thing of, oh, everybody, all these horrible things have happened to me. I don't want to make it an issue, etc." cetera. Um, mm. And as you say, it, you probably wouldn't have got that response now. No, no. And I, she probably wouldn't give that response herself, no. would she, from herself? I think she probably realised that, brushing it away so fast from herself even was and not processing it properly was was a was bad for her own mental health but i think madonna you know she's got a horror of victim mentality she'll have a good moan we've all seen her have a good moan about how she's treated (laughs) and you know she can yak on for the ages about stuff like that but she she actually doesn't have a victim mentality she's taken a lot and and she's and she's got a pretty good sense of humor i think i still think she's pretty sharp you know I the, the Kabbalah stuff not so much that was a like uh oh she's wobbling she's going you know but then she recovered from that and uh, <laughs> I just think she's really hard working she gets a lot of flack when yeah. people have a go at her costumes it's because they're stage costumes she's supposed to be seen like four miles away you know she's not walking to the shops dressed like that when they have a go at her obviously plastic surgery interventions sometimes she does look a bit odd but at the same time I would. I'd still, I, I would always, you know, stick up for her and defend her because I, I think she's such an important artist for me. Yeah, no, the, only, the only time she lost me was when she married that ghastly English film director. Um, <laughs> <laughs> She's got very bad taste in men. That's her, that's her flaw. And I, I actually, I will stand by that. She's got a blind spot. Right. Sean, Sean Penn, not so much either. I didn't think any of her, yeah, I don't think any of her men are up yeah. to standard yeah. <laughs> well who who would be i mean <laughs> who well, would I mean, you you describe her in the piece as the medusa of mor so that's a pretty <laughs> tough thing to stand up to regardless <laughs> this is why i get overexcited and then a good editor should have walked in and slapped me you know, <laughs> you, no but, um... absolutely not <laughs> She's very, she is intimidating because she really knows her own mind and she'll really respond to you if she say, you say something that she doesn't, you know, mm. doesn't like. So she's, she is intimidating, but I do think there's a vulnerability about Madonna, yeah. you know, a sort of loneliness. And we do all forget, we think it's part of her mythology that her mother actually died at a really critical age. And everyone just says, so what? It's, it just feels like a story, but to her, it actually happened. And I think her humanity just get forgotten in the yeah, mix yeah. quite a lot. Yeah, yeah.
Barbara, you've written for The Observer now for many years and you're mm-hmm. always entertaining and fascinating to read. And a couple of weeks ago, you wrote a piece about the news that there was going to be a sequel to This Is Spinal Tap. And <laughs> I, I, lo- I love the piece. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm no different from almost anybody I know. I, I, I revere this film. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 I worship it. I've probably seen it 10 times. You, you yeah. expressed exactly what I think a lot of us felt, which is, I mean, you say, are some cult masterpieces just too perfect to revisit? And I think you... there's anxiety, yeah, isn't there? Just yes. because, even though it's illogical, and also the same team, and they're really on the ball, I think. I mean, I, I saw those interviews like Terry, when they're in character doing, the, it's just like, wow, you know, they're such good improvisers, apart from anything else. Yeah. So really, there shouldn't be any anxiety, but it's it's a priceless film, and you just don't want Keep away from it. Leave it alone. Just leave it alone for once in your, you know, just well, once. So, so not, to, be alone. not to take anything for granted. There may be listeners who have never seen This Is Spinal <gasps> Tap. Right. And they're listening so, to this podcast. <laughs> it's, it's unlikely. It's unlikely. But let's just, let's just call out to them if you haven't ever seen it. Please watch. It is, it, it invented pretty much invented the whole mockumentary genre. It just gets everything absolutely right. These are comic geniuses, probably, you know, Christopher Guest, more than anything, to yeah. me, is is just a genius. And I think that's more like, you mentioned the other, the other films that they've made, you know, mm. on the back of Spinal Tap. I mean, they're all pretty brilliant, aren't they? I yeah. think, I mean, best oh, in show, yeah, waiting for Guffman. And Michael McKean as well also is a very good serious actor. He's very, you know, he's he was really good in was it Better Call Better Call Saul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really good in that. He's a, he's actually a really strong normal actor. Harry Shearer, of course, in The Simpsons. Yes. Doing all the, you know, Mr. Burns. You know, they're they're just legends. The whole they really are. Mm. They're like, giants. Total legends. Yeah, they're absolute so giants. What's going to happen with this film? Do you think though? Do you think that it will? It will. It's just so fifty-fifty in my head. And, uh, <laughs> I, tr- I, mean, I trust look, them. I trust them. But... We all know we're going to watch it. We're all going to watch it. <laughs> no one's going to go. Yeah, forget it. Jasper watched it for the first time last night. What did you think? I was going to say actually, in fair, in fairness, in fairness to those last listeners night. that haven't, yeah, in fairness to those <laughs> listeners that haven't watched it, I until yesterday was a host of this podcast and hadn't watched it. Shame, shame. Like a podcast host. I know, I know. I've, but anyway, I've, I've been very, I'm being very honest and vulnerable here, so I'd, I'd appreciate a little bit more uh, compassion and understanding. No, um, <laughs> I found it very funny. I really enjoyed it. Phew. Oh, um, it was I'm very. Really, I'm really surprised about that. You took so long to watch it, didn't you? Actually, yeah. have any curiosity? He's young. I, I We've, been young. Him to, <laughs> We've been telling <laughs> him to watch it. I know. Since I know, you joined you know the when, company, you know when someone tells you you must watch X Y Z, and it it sort of you go rarely nuts. rarely lives up to how much they hype it up. So I sort of That's had that true. sort of reluctance because then. I'd be put on the spot and I'd be I'd be told, you know, what did you think? And if, if I didn't say, I think it's... But actually, I did think it was very funny, which yeah. is a great relief, because otherwise I'd be sitting here going, oh, God, why are we talking about this? <laughs> well, no, well, we but, simply said weird. you can't work here anymore. <laughs> I mean, it really would have been that straightforward. <laughs> Pack your bags and fuck off. Jasper, you can watch it now. You've got to watch it now 15 times a week. I don't think you understand what you're going Okay, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, no, I, and the thing is, I'd like to watch it with my girlfriend, so I probably will watch it again very soon. That's great. She'll say she doesn't think it's funny. 
<laughs> I doubt that. Anyway, I I just obviously over the years I've seen bits of it, like the amps going to eleven and the drummers dying and stuff, which are on their own even very very funny. But there's something about the whole thing put together that really does. I don't know. It just treads the fine line between stupid and clever. I, I don't know another way to. There's a really strong tone of pathetic all the way through, it, isn't there? And that's, it, yes. I think that's, that's what the, the killing thing is all the way through. Yeah. It's, it's not the set pieces almost. It's it's the kind of trudging and the trying. It, it, the... It, you're right. It, it's, it's kind of a, this band being eroded by failure, by a sort of increasing yeah. failure. Yeah. Actually, you, you, Barbara, you, you, you mentioned about how they would stay in character when being interviewed and so on. Yeah. Shall, we, shall we have listened to the clip, Barney? Well, I was just before we do, I just wanted to insert this this thing. So, Spinal Tap are the featured, you know, meta artists on the home page, <laughs> um, and so we're featuring <laughs> featuring really the first, you know, the first kind of serious piece written about them in Rolling Stone by by Michael Goldberg, May eight eighty four. So the film's only just coming out, and what I love about it to tie it into Rock's back pages is that Michael McKean says. We had this um, Iron Maiden interview from NME, he says, as David St. Hubbins. It was incredible. The guy is saying things like, McKean slips into his English rock star voice. Well, you know, we like to view ourselves well like we're troubadours, you know, from the ancient days of song, wandering around the countryside. So, I mean, I love the fact that the music press... It really did kind of influence their their sense of what what tap were going to be like. So I just wanted to quote that. I love the bit where they're quoting review where where the interviewer is quoting reviews at them of their and they're sort of they're like they didn't write that. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I had a stand up row with somebody because I insisted they were British. That I knew it was a comedy, but I thought they were British actors, and I didn't. I mean, their British accents are just out of this because most yeah, British yeah. accents done by Americans are like posh aren't they well, it's... The, high, the posh one but their regional accents are fantastic I, I had the thing in reverse with The Wire where I didn't realise half these actors in The Wire are English <laughs> 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 no. Dominic West yeah <laughs> yeah well, exactly. Idris Elba. I mean, it's like, I, know. I, I didn't have a clue. No, I didn't have a clue either. Didn't have a clue either. It's, so what's interesting is that that 1984 interview, they're not being interviewed in character. They're talking mm-hmm. as, as you know, the, the, the real actors stroke comedic geniuses that they are. From mm-hmm. then on, pretty much, after Spinal mm-hmm. Tap became such a massive hit, they pretty much always did interviews in character. including well, the whole the, career in character, didn't they? whole career in character. Yeah. And yeah. actually, so to, just to refer back to what Mark said, we do have this glorious audio interview that the late Gavin Martin, God rest his soul, did with, yeah. not, not with Christopher Guest, but with Nigel Tuffle <laughs> in 2009. So, Jasper, if you could play this for us. He remains hewn into the living rock of Spony. I think Stone Age, which has always been mm. an obsession with me, the, the site is thousands of years old. Well, you know, it's, mm. it's clearly a very old site, but mm. it's Mm. research stone really is amazing when you put electricity 
electricity into it, how it sends out the vibrations. It's quite incredible, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that seemed to be a real uh, shame. That, I mean, some of your best work seemed to be uh, Stonehenge, but that that little problem with the, the inches and the feet... Oh, that, look, that's over history, isn't it? Look, that happened once. Was that upsetting to you? Cause it was, At the moment, of course it was, but now it's... 25 years ago, so who cares? You know, yeah. we, we, it worked many different nights. Yeah. And, and so what, what was seen is that stupid night, you know, where someone fucked up, basically. But, you know, we've had many successes, but people don't want to see success, they want to see failure. I wish our listeners could see it. Barbara was like rolling around in tears of laughter just listening to that. As you know, was what, I. what clever actors and also writers because they're improvising. So they're writing, aren't they? And the new one is, is going to be improvised. So that kind of bodes well, you know, for what it might be. I wish it well. I just sort of like, I'm just nervous. Yes, no, I, 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 I think the one thing is they've made so many other good movies about other stuff, yeah, that I true. think I think they can do this again in a way that, you know, if that had been the only thing they'd done, I think it would have been, let, you know, it would have been much... What do you think of the cameo situation, though? With, um, not happy about that. What do you think of that? that? Not it's happy too about much that. real life, isn't it? I don't Just want Paul like, McCartney Just for slashing his wrist at the moment. It's like, <laughs> yeah. what is this going to be over? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, that to me is, that's that's a bad choice. It is. It, it turns I, into Spice World then and all that sort of thing, doesn't it? Because everyone wants to... But who's going to be in like, El- Is Elton John going to be in it? And, and yes. Like, big names. It's big a big names. names. I mean, look, yeah. they uh, might I get away that. with it. I, but I the point that. about the original one was that all the character actors were pretty... So, well, they weren't very well known. But then they mm. were all brilliant, weren't they? And the ensemble around them as yeah. well. Like, one of my favourites was Janine. Oh, uh, God. Her, her astrological. That is so off that age. Because yeah. I used to very oh. unironically have my palm read all the time when I was <laughs> And it, I just, it just so, she really caught that kind of woman as well. So, you know, that, there's, there's so many different other characters I, I, around. I, I, Main ones. The so. English, the English manager. Now, who's it? Lord Tim? Who's the, the Lord famous... Tim Hudson? So he's no. kind of <laughs> he's kind of based on Lord Tim Hudson, wasn't he? Some extent. You know? I wasn't <laughs> even aware of that, but it probably it may, there may be some truth in it. He was absolutely brilliant, wasn't he? I mean, yeah. they just played it so straight. That, I mean, I can believe um, that, that some, taste, yeah. yeah, I can believe that some bands watch Spinal Tap, you know, on their tour buses, and they were they were themselves so stupid that they didn't realise <laughs> it was it was a, a mo- it was fake. I think I think a lot of people did that. Yeah, so many great details in it, though. That's the, like I mean, all of the little bits are kind of right, like the insistence on how professional they are all the time, and all of this kind of thing. It's like that's exactly what stupid rock stars yeah. do. They insist. Oh, oh no, but yeah. but I'm a professional, and it's like it's like a sort of mantra. It's like it's it's it is brilliant in that sense, yeah, and yeah. I think one of the reasons yeah. why it sort of survives as well because it, you know it's it is full of casual sexism and and you know that even the stonehenge <laughs> scene as as you know it's it's kind of but but because they're they're so pathetic they have restricted height people on stage it's like so dodgy on so yeah it, it is but, but it's, i think it's because they're so pathetic that the film is making fun of that attitude and making fun of them so yeah it's actually lampooning that rather than kind of furthering oh, it yeah. which i think makes it 
and makes from the it start work. as well and from the yeah. uh, you know oh, yeah. they, they didn't it didn't sort of like become like that because we decided it they they went in with that didn't they mm. like all the information is there they like i mentioned in the piece briefly they've got a with Nell and i stage show there seems to be like a weird growing appetite for for going for cult for cult kind of movies yeah. and artifacts so let's just see what you know it's a bit of a new thing there isn't it it is. I mean, I just want to briefly mention, even the music is done so brilliantly. We were listening to you know, <laughs> Big Bottom, Bex Farm uh, this morning and uh, sort of agreeing that it's sort of really bad, but it's not to sort of camp in a campy sort of way ridiculously yeah bad. i mean and you know it's sort of just bad enough tight. it's, it's believable. bad enough. it's believable that's the I thing mean, the, the guitar solos <laughs> are sort of technically okay they're just really wouldn't uninteresting yeah. wouldn't yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and, and even though Tufnell, you know like acts like he's the sort of new jeff but i'm always it was based to some extent <laughs> on jeff but but of course, the idea that Tufnell was even in the same sort of, you know, Stratocastophere as the great Jeff Beck <laughs> is so ridiculous. Anyway, we love Tap and any any excuse to to talk. And it was just lovely to read your your piece and yeah, make well, that the was, kind of thing. It was. I think that was a big deal. That that caused shockwaves through the thousands of music journalists we know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I still have a very happy memory of going to see the premiere at the Odeon Leicester Square. You saw it on the movie, on the movie. Yeah, screen. yeah. Oh, wow. And okay. and I rem, I remember, um, you know, our, 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 I'd like to say our dear friend, Neil Tennant. Um, it would be inaccurate to call him our dear friend, but we, we've had him on the podcast and we revere Neil Tennant. That's he was sitting in, he was see, sitting in front of, of, of me and whoever the other NME people were. And he was... He was weeping with laughter. Um, <laughs> I remember, you know, we just looked at each other. We all looked at each other like, how, how did this happen? How did how did they get this yeah, so yeah. right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was exactly. glorious. Because he glorious. wouldn't have thought someone like Neil Tennant would, would think it was that funny. But he, you know, obviously he's got a, he's got a very sharp sense of humour. Yes. And I mean, in a way, it was, in... it was pure smash hits, wasn't it? In a sense, mm. that yeah. film. Yeah, that much was. much more so than the normal music track, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I think the so. good news about the sequel, even if the sequel sucks, is that hopefully, because <laughs> you were saying, oh, you watch it on a big screen, <laughs> it means that it means that perhaps like cinemas like the Prince Charles will put on the original in in a cinema, and mm. and and that would be quite a quite yeah, a fun, fun experience. Yeah, it'd be fun if it was released like that, like with a lot of hoo ha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Be, be almost funny if it was just terrible. If in fact they should just get on with it, we've, we've glasses off now, pulled it off. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can't. We can't stop them. <laughs> So moving on from the mighty tap, in the last episode, we, we it was a sort of Christmas episode because the lovely Daryl Easley was talking about Slade and Merry Xmas, everybody. This week, we've got a sort of dark flip side to that because we, we realised we had an audio interview from 1990 with Genesis P. Orridge of Throbbing Gristle and the Psychic TV fame. It's Mark Sinker asking Genesis about 
what Christmas is like round the oranges. Um, and um, it turns out it's, it's, you know, it's, it's pagan. It's a pagan Christmas. So he, he, he tells Mark all about what happens. And yeah, up his... to a point, they still have a Christmas tree because the whispering yeah. Paula is then partner Paula. <laughs> she whispers, you can almost hear it through the noise floors of the tape, but they're going to have a Christmas tree. But then, but then it, it, it took back, it's been Chris. Good old Chris, K R I S. You know, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, um, but there's also a lot of ranting about the dying of the sun. It being about the dying sun. How modern Christian Christian societies destroying the ecology of the planet, pre-Christian belief systems, Saturnalia. Let's listen to the clip. This is you know Santa's pagan shamanistic roots. <laughs> I always write Xmas. Right. Well, everyone calls it Christmas, which doesn't sort of... I mean, it's not the same. Good old Chris. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I was reading a book as well that was interesting on intoxication, and it said that the figure of Santa Claus, and Santa, I also noticed, was an anagram of Satan as well, right, yeah. um, is based on the Siberian shaman who used to take fly a garret and they would sweat slightly and have rosy cheeks and they would fly and they would get snow which had reindeer urine on it which was filled with fly garret in a, a non-toxic amount and they would actually drink and eat that right. in order to, to travel through the sky to shaman. And he can't, the reason he comes down the chimneys because he can't touch <coughs> the ground because he's a shaman. Right. So... Yeah. The whole thing is just riddled with the most incredible mythology that we don't really get much enough of. Yeah, right. But like you say, there it all is. I mean, the Christmas is, cards is yeah, this shaman exactly. That's right, flying yeah. high as a kite on Flyer Garrett hallucinogens. I mean, listen to it. It's not. It's it's only a hair's breadth away from Nigel Tufnell in the way, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> that was really into the tap. Yeah, <laughs> pretty well. I mean, yeah. all I ever heard about there was a lot of darkness around that scene sometimes. Obviously, yes, yes. But when, but the other thing I mainly heard from from that camp was they were always desperate for babysitters. Like they were trying to get people to babysit them. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of um, you know, psych TV, talking gristle, all that sort of scene. It was that there was there were people that were completely obsessed with them, or it was almost too impenetrable to sort of get into. So. Yes. It was, it was a kind of yeah. odd, odd scene. I mean, they made a really horrible noise, both those bands as well. <laughs> you, you have to take that to I, mean, I, I first that, remember... You, that should happen sometimes, though, the horrible noise. Well, that's, that, 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 that's yeah. a legitimate <laughs> expression. I, I remember when there was that exhibition at the ICA where, where there were Coombe Transmissions, was the name of their sort of umbrella thing, and it was Cozy Fanatusi uh, uh, and Genesis Peorish with things like, tampons nailed to the wall and things like that. And it was a, at the time, it was that guy, Fife Robertson, this ghastly cultural commentator, wrote for the Evening Standard. 
absolutely despises <laughs> things. You know, and so we all kind of bought into it because anything offends Fife Robertson, who is a very kind of loud <laughs> Scotsman, who is it's not art, it's fart. Um, <laughs> and uh, so anything that offends anything that offends him went down a storm. But um, I had some dealings with Genesis Peorish, and I didn't like him at all. So that's. Oh, right. Well, yeah. can you reveal those or not? No. Well, we have no. discussed no. them before. <laughs> okay, the okay. It was pretty unsavoury then, and it would be unsavoury again now. So let's, <laughs> let's, let's, let's not do that. But interesting, I mean, presumably, you know, would there have, in editorial meetings, Barbara, would there have been a sort of, you know, Pete Orridge camp or trying to get Psychic TV into the pages when others On the was, cover. Were, say, were saying no? Um, did you have <laughs> heated debates? Um, no. <laughs> um, the um, the, the, the I think at zigzag it was it would be more floating around during that period. Sure, it should have been a bit earlier, like mid eighties, very early late eighties sort of thing. Mm. So, but they you know they were they were like a cult, a big cult band. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, people who wanted to write about them, they've like these massive like KLF fans tend to do like massive like really intricate pieces that nobody in their right mind would read because it's so <laughs> it's it so over involved <laughs> about you know how we're all being uh, like ley lines and paganism and all that sort of stuff i think the other stuff like you know the dodgy stuff i've seen a couple of documentaries since that seemed to come out quite a long lot a lot long you know long time later yes. i don't think many people realize yeah. about that sort of side of things yeah because yeah. yeah. you has had she wrote that book she wrote yeah. that book she's yeah. now talks about stuff she'd never have mentioned at the time understandably uh, and she she's actually I'm a, an admirable woman I, I have a lot of time for her a lot of some of the women around that scene in and around that scene were very interesting yeah i think dorothy mock max Pryor's got in her book out as well hasn't she like um exhibition road or something uh-huh. some of the women obviously were taking huge risks yes. um, in the times that they were living to sort of even live and breathe as they were never might be so visible yeah, so they're yeah. interesting Mm. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not like Genesis himself was was uninteresting, and even in this, he says some quite, I think, you know, compelling things about Christianity mm. and Christmas. The, the giveaway for me is is just how bloody humorless. it's all so grim this is a guy really good he he had a good relationship with lawyers because he won two massive lawsuits. I mean, right, okay. million million dollar plus lawsuits. Oh, One wow. against Rick Rubin. He was staying in Rick Rubin's studio, and a fire broke out, and he fell from a window thirty feet, and he won one point five million dollars suing American Recordings and Rick Rubin. And he also sued. I didn't know that. And no? he sued uh, Channel Four for the documentary, which accused him. Oh, that must have been the one that I I saw then. Yeah. yeah. So, the, so yeah. I, he's had two. He had two major yeah. wins in in law courts. Right. Uh, which oh, is right. which is kind of interesting. The fact that he was so kind together. of you know yeah yeah. I mean, he obviously could sit and sort all that sort of stuff out yeah. in a he, weird, old, he hippie may, way. Yeah, he may have had a hotline to Carter Ruck. You know, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Steady on. I've got a friend <laughs> friend who works for Carter Rock. <laughs> so I actually don't know much about that scene. I knew people that were slightly obsessive about it. Right. And, but but they they lost your attention after because what they were interested in was not and you know, it was too it was kind of dull. Like yeah. you said, that it was very intense, very intricate, very, very learned in a way, but madly dull. You know, <laughs> yes. And very little humour about it. 
for all the experimentation, sometimes that sort of strain of quite poisonous hippie turns up in music, doesn't it? And it's yes. like, it's difficult, it's very conceptual, yes. and it's purposely difficult because they can't do humour. And <laughs> humour, you've either got that or you haven't. <laughs> yes. We're coming towards the end of the episode. I just want, before we get to the, the library highlights section, I just want to mention someone who died in the week, Ezra Mohawk. Not her real name. She's actually born Sandy Hurwitt, but she called herself Ezra Mohawk as a result of being married to a fellow named Fraser Mohawk, who we don't have time to go into, but quite an important LA sort of scenes. The guy had something to do with the formation of the Buffalo Springfield. Anyway, Ezra Mohawk later became part of the whole kind of asylum family. She was a pal of like Laura Nero. So she sort of, she ended up in the kind of David Geffen world. And I interviewed her once in Nashville, outside Nashville, where she was living. She's a bit of a cult figure. She made two or three quite eccentric singer-songwriter albums. I think they were on reprise. One was on reprise. There's a great track I remember called Full-Fledged Woman. It's very sort of Nero-esque. She's a really interesting woman, and I was sad to hear that she'd gone. So I just wanted to kind of name-check her. Is her name means anything to any of you? Probably no. not. No, no, sorry. No. She was sort of the Laura Nero that just sort of did, did not kind of make it in any meaningful sense. But fascinating figure. And at this point, I'm going to hand over to my colleagues to tell us about notable articles added yeah. to Rock's Black Page. As I say, Barbara, just jump in if anything occurs to you to say. Just briefly, a, f- a few things. Janice Joplin being interviewed by Mike Oberman, the Evening Star in Washington, D.C. in 1968. She says, he, he being Chet Helms, I'd guess, he told me Big Brother was looking for a chick singer. So I thought I'd give it a try. I don't know what happened. I just exploded. I'd never sung like that before. I'd been into a Bessie Smith type thing, you know, big open notes. I stood still and I sang simple. But you can't sing like that in front of a rock band, all that rhythm and volume going. It's a really kind of very nice glimpse of, you know, her, the new process. Paul Nelson remembers Lester Bangs, Rolling Stone, 1982. He wasn't a classicist and he didn't run with a pack. Instead, he played spontaneously from the heart, stringing together paragraphs so disparate that only the force of his will, the strength of his convictions and the size of his talent held his ideas together. At his best, you could go one-on-one with any new journalist you care to name. That he wasn't more widely recognised as an important American writer is tragic, but not surprising. He wrote about rock and roll, still a subject not taken seriously by most literati. He wrote about rock and roll with all the beauty, the wildness and clangour of the music itself. And finally, he had a sense of humour. Hear, hear. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of. When was that written? When that was, was that? That, that was when he died, nineteen eighty-two. So it was. It was oh right. So maybe he was more celebrated later because he appeared in Almost Famous. He's probably like one of the more famous. The, the, uh, the, the cult of Lester Bangs is a kind of, in a sense, as you, you're right, is a sort of recent development. Though he was worshipped by the rock writing community in his like during his life. Contemporary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How do you pronounce Nina Cherry? Is it just Nina Ch- Cherry? I would say Nana, but I might be wrong. I, I, <laughs> I would it's, say it's, wrong. I, I need to, it's a question I needed to ask because I'm not. This is, uh, <laughs> Don Watson, this is when she was in Rip Brigham Panic, 1983. 
I think we tend to forget that she had this career before, solo career. Yeah, with Andy Oliver. That's right. In fact, I saw them DJing at Viv Goldman's marvellous thing. Yeah, they're massive fans. Before before Andy Oliver became that um, big sort of foodie, foodie, they were doing that long before that. I interviewed, I'll say Nina, now I might say Nina. I don't know what to do (laughs) Let's but, call um, all I, off. I, I interviewed her when she just had her first baby, and it was not that long after mm-hmm. Buffalo Stance and all that. Absolutely lovely woman. I mean, she like, is a lovely out. woman. I've met yeah, her. Yeah. Just, we're featuring the cover. That was a cover story for Enemy, wasn't it? Yeah, she was. I, I think it was just after she'd had a kid. She was, she was carrying this, this quite big baby around. Yes. So it was probably about a year after Buffalo Stance yeah. and all that. Yes. But yeah, yes. She's, uh, she's notably nice. She uh, really does really well in interviews. She really does. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely the impression I get. She says, I went to Africa once and I felt really at home. I mean, really at home, just straight away. I don't think I could ever live there, mind you, because there are a lot of things there that just ain't in my system that I just couldn't live <laughs> up to, like one man having several wives and women having lots of babies, one after another. People are really happy there, though. There's a really strong feeling of community. They can live like that. But I grew up in concrete, you know. I need nightclubs and drinks and parties and stuff. Lastly, Tom York, interviewed by David Sinclair of Rolling Stone, 1997. I bought a whole lot of those How to Improve Your, your Life books. And we've been trying to use them in very different ways. <laughs> One said something like, you'll never make friends unless you like everyone genuinely. Oh, well, I'm fucked then, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> is that Tom York? Yeah. Is that Tom York? Yeah, no, radio heads Tom York. Like yeah. him reading self-help books to sort of like, you know. <laughs> but, so, yeah, he just that, that, goes that, to a bookshop, goes to Blackwell's and Oxford and just comes home with the, the whole pile of everything <laughs> yeah. got on like, how to, love, how to love thy neighbour. <laughs> I tell you, when, yeah. when I, I used to work in a bookshop in Charing Cross Road in like, like 1979, 1980, around there. Was that foils? Uh, and, uh, no, it was Words and Music, which is the other side oh, okay. of the road. And was the, I, for some reason, was given the self-help section. <laughs> it was a really, really, really dismal experience. All these, it was just when all these books were really sort of coming out in vast numbers. And the sort of people who would buy them, you just took one look at them, you knew they were wrong. How dare you? Know. you. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Tom oh. are there all the time. How to yeah. win friends and influence people. Yeah. Tom, and Tom has, Tom has such a sunny disposition. He's, it's working. It's working. It is working. Yeah. They do work. I, those I love the way my like, OCR software always changes his name to Thorn. Thorn York. Thorn York. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, that's my lot. Can I insert a couple? I don't normally pipe up at this point, but just a couple of things I've really loved uh, reading and adding to the library. One, Mark Lewison being interviewed by Graham Thompson, the Daily Mail, July 2019. Mark Lewison is like the world's foremost authority on the Beatles, as I'm sure you know. And he's actually a really great interview, really smart, interesting guy. Um, and um, he talks about how after volume one of his his epic, enormous, intended three-volume Beatles biography, the definitive, he says he received no feedback on volume one, which is called Tune In. Obviously, it's Tune In, Turn On, Drop Out. Are there going to be the three titles? Whether he's going to still be alive when Drop Out comes out, <laughs> fucking knows. He's going on for years. Anyway, so he, he says to Graham Thompson, not, I've had not a word 
conceding that there has effectively been a severance of relations. That's what happened, yes, but I didn't do it. They severed it post-publication of TuneIn. I haven't had the benefit of an explanation. They control the relationship, not me. But I just want to say, so... So foremost is he as an authority. He he dispels all the fake news around the Beatles. So, for example, just one example, the the very the, the famous quote that Lennon apparently gave, which is, you know, Ringo isn't even the best drummer in the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, was never coined by John Lennon. It had been it had been fact spoken by a comedian named Phil Pope on the Radio Four comedy show Radioactive. So there. So there, That's, we are slaying the myth. Yeah, actually. That's big news. Uh, actually, what, what, one word of advice to any of social media users here. <laughs> Never, <laughs> ever go on any Beatles fan pages on things like Facebook. Because the moment a picture of Yoko Ono was posted, the, the torrent of misogynistic of abuse. racist really? abuse. Know, it's it's just unbelievable know, you know yeah know, she was hilarious in that get back documentary because she's she was like winding them up she's yep. sort of sitting right in the middle of everything yeah. i didn't realize i didn't realize that she was being so sort of in their faces until oh. i you know because the other documentary before that was so muddy you could barely see what was going on but yeah she was she was yeah. definitely on a wind up there yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> it's extraordinary there are hot legions of people who still blame her for the beatles breaking up blame her for lennon's death yeah well, they must be they must be pretty old by now i don't tend to look at their personal profiles to sort of work out who they are <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the fake um, names are enough <laughs> so the, the the second piece just caught my eye because it's the fabulous diane warren songwriter to the stars we've actually got two diane warren audio interviews on rocks back pages i'm delighted to say this is an interview that dorian linsky did for the guardian in august 2021 and she's about to release um, an album her own album the cave sessions volume one which are versions of many of her huge hit records done by her anyway she's she sort of talks about very disparagingly about sort of songwriting teams. It says, almost uniquely in modern pop, she prefers to work alone. She says, I don't know, when there's 12 writers on a song, that's mm-hmm. ex- what exactly are they doing? She says, are they, get- <laughs> are they getting the coffee? Are they coming up with a hi-hat pattern in the bridge? I mean, I don't, need a- I don't need a writing camp. I am a writing camp. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I, just, I love that. that uh, you I, I, have I a little that. pop then, all the kind of Ed Sheeran kind of tailor. They all have their exactly. writing yes. groups yes. and stuff. Yeah, 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 and I kind of sympathize a little bit because bands have that organically. So right. they're just kind of creating a band around themselves, aren't they? But it is quite funny. Yeah. Since you mentioned Ed Sheeran, I wanted to just quickly go back to like the enemy. When you wrote this piece, I just love this quote, if I can find it. You wrote a piece in 2018, really sort of standing up for music journalism in, in a way that I appreciate it. <laughs> and so this is March 2018, when they're going, what? I can't, what happened in 2018? They went, they went. Uh, just oh, online yeah. only. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. It, so it was a long, slow kind of slide, wasn't it? Yeah. There's a great. Yeah. So the title of your piece is "Farewell Enemy: Irreverent, Acerbic, Essential." At least when I was there. <laughs> Barbara, <laughs> That's um, said. And, Can and, you explain that, please? Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then in, in the first paragraph, you you, you go. Um, is everybody absolutely sure that there's no need for a music press? I have two words: 
Ed and Sheeran. <laughs> I, I, I have got a beef with him. I think that, that the music industry pivoting to find new versions of him was the music press would have sorted that out back in the day. We'd, yes. Yes. We'd have, we wouldn't have even been that horrible to him. We'd have just put him where he should be and not everywhere yeah. so yeah he's a he's a bugbear of mine yeah 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 Be- beautiful well i well i totally agree jasper what have you got for us this week i've got a few things first of which is sophie ellis bexter interviewed by Bex- sylvia pastor for bextor bextor <laughs> um <laughs> interviewed by sylvia patterson for the word and sylvia patterson puts to her you used to write charismatic front woman underneath your autograph I haven't written that for a while. It's tongue-in-cheek, really, and if you have to write it, it probably isn't so. Any opportunity I get to tell people how they should view me, then I'll take it. I had a few things I used to write on autographs. That or be naughty. (laughs) And then she goes on to talk about songwriting, and I, I really like this bit. Go in, put some chords up, start getting a melody. Without sounding too pretentious about it, I've always felt like a good melody... Um, oh, I'm, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna go for it. When Michelangelo was making sculptures, he used to say he'd have a block of stone and the sculpture ready within, and you just have to chip away until you find the sculpture. It's the same with melody; it's there, an obvious melody. It's just gonna appear, emerge. So you sing around it, and then you realise you're coming back to the same four notes, and that's your thing. I think anyone can do it, though. It's like a muscle with confidence and practice; you get better all the time. Then you realise you're writing exactly the same song over and over, and that's when you stop. <laughs> Q Ed Sheeran. Q Ed Sheeran. That was quite tap. Yeah. Get back to tap. That was that was, that was tap. Brilliant. I really, I really liked it. I thought it was great. Very good. And then David Stubbs writing for Jockey Slut magazine on Joseph Lanza's Elevator Music, a surreal history of Muzak, Easy Listening, and other mood song. It's good because you know David Stubbs is trying, I think, quite hard to give elevator music that this book about elevator music the sort of airing that that it should get as a result of this this volume and you know elevator music is in many ways instructive its scholarly foundation is strong with lander invoking the literature of sir francis bacon thomas moore and aldous huxley the mellifluous tones of david's heart playing which invented king saul from going insane and gregorian plain song medieval muzak all this is part of his mission to explain how mood music is not some contemporary abomination, but a genre that has existed since the beginning of time, etc., etc., etc. All of this conveyed in Lanza's often elegant and acute prose makes for a recommended read. But this stuff wasn't any good. The snobs were right. Even Ted <laughs> Nugent, for once in his life, was right. <laughs> See, he's a melody maker. Because right, Ted Nugent. Ted Nugent, <laughs> Ted Nugent hated Muzak so much that apparently he tabled a $10 million bid to buy the company just so that he could shut it down. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> and then last of all, I'd like to talk about a piece, Carol Cooper in the Village Voice, on the 3rd of May, 2017. And this is interested me because it's Rakim Mali Mal, Roxanne Chante, and other rap pioneers celebrate 40 years of hip-hop. Now, this year, 2023, we've been celebrating 50 years of hip-hop, and 2017 mm. is only six years ago. So somewhere along There's the line... There's a dispute about when it started. <laughs> it's 19- almost as 1973. Oh. Yes, that's, well, when, that's when Cool Herc put on the first party in the, 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 the rec room of... A, a block it's of... disputed though because even when all the documentaries came out yeah. this year earlier in the year they were still sort of saying it is disputed I, I don't know what they're disputing yeah. or what came earlier or a little bit later but Carol Cooper <laughs> Carol Cooper talked to to Sal Abicello whose bar it was on yeah, Jerome yeah. Avenue that then Baz Luhrmann 
turned into something slightly different in the get down. Oh, that was ridiculous. And, and Abatello is is so it's a world Netflix subscribers may recognise from Baz Luhrmann's early hip hop fantasia, the get down. Abatello certainly did. Two years ago, when he brought his first hip hop fever reunion concert to the Lehman Center, the get down was not yet turning rap history into a colourful fairy tale. But <laughs> Lerman showed up at the concert looking for inspiration. He saw me, met Curtis Blow, met all the rappers, got phone numbers, and I never heard from him again, Abacello recalls, with barely contained frustration. Ooh. Now, if you stream the show, you'll see how he ripped off and changed the image of the fever to put this imaginary club up there called the Inferno. On the show, it's run as an organized crime front, a far cry from the way regulars remember the fever. So that's kind of a well, little dig there's, there from there's Sal. Quite a frowning, like people frowned upon a bit of glamour with the, with the women in hip-hop for a long time, actually, like when he like back in the they would get criticized for it rather than it was more it was more kind of mm. it was seen as proper to be kind of street mm. almost kind of boyish um in how you yes. approached it and not to glam up and be sort sure. of sexy and and you know i think you said to me about that piece with salt and pepper where they got a lot of criticism for sure. being a bit raunchy and a bit pop Yes. So, I yeah. love salt so, and yeah. pepper. I think salt and pepper are like yeah. just phenomenally good. But I mean, the, did, did you watch the Get Down, the Baz Luhrmann thing? I haven't seen that one of his. No, uh, I, I, I can only watch two episodes and bailed. It was just ludicrous. It was like Hit, cat, him but, generally is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Baz, Baz, ludicrous. Surely Come not. <laughs> he invented ludicrous. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you're turning the Bronx, the South Bronx, into a fairyland was just absolutely madness. What, but any... Wonderland. Yes. Okay, yeah. <laughs> okay well, well, I might avoid that then. <laughs> right. Listen, I think we're coming to the end of our podcast episode. I'm sure Barbara's got to get back to doing some actual work. Um, <laughs> Got so, two emails uh, to check. Two four, emails four direct, to check. Four mugs of coffee to drink. <laughs> uh, it's it's been absolutely fabulous hosting you, Barbara. I'm so glad we made it work. It only took about two hours to get uh, the technology <laughs> right. I, I'm glad I, we I set aside the whole butt. day. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> I did say we need quicker just to come down here. Um, <laughs> listeners, if you've enjoyed this episode, please follow our podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use. And Give us a review if you can. It really helps. Do visit Rocksback Pages, where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP, and if not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. And we will be back in the new year with uh, Andy Schwartz of New York Rocker fame. So we'll be going back to the... CBGB days of the mid-70s. Until then, happy Christmas to one and all. Thank you again, Barbara, so much. Thank you. And, Enjoyed it. Thank you. And we at this point say goodbye. It was the night before Christmas and all through the Hold house. it now, wait, hold it. That's played out. Hit it. That concludes episode 167 of the Rocksback Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Barbara Ellen. Find more of her writing in The Observer and on RBP. Those to Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocksback Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. 
Happy holidays. Now I'm the guy named Curtis Blow, and Christmas is one thing I know. So every year, just about this time, I celebrate it with a rhyme. Bought a red suit of dude with a friendly attitude and a sleigh full of goodies for the people on the block. Got a long white beard, maybe looks kind of weird, and if you ever see him, he can give you quite a shot.